the first person I came out to outside of my family was my best friend. And I did tell him that I fancied his father. That's like two coming outs where one, you say to your friend, I'm gay or I'm queer or whatever. Mm. And then the second one is, and uh, what's your dad doing Friday night? <laughs> <laughs> that could be weird. I mean, that's that could be a sitcom. I, I suppose it could be easily. <laughs> Trevor Campbell, and this is You Made Me Queer, the show where queer people sit down next to one another and say, hi, hi, hi. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was my heartstopper impression. That's right. Every episode, I invite a fantastic 2SLGBTQIA plus guest on to point the finger of blame at who and or what made them queer. Yes, that's right. Last night... Last Eve, I finished season one of Heartstopper, the show that everyone is talking about. Everyone's talking about it, and they should be. I think it's great. I did wait to start uh, for a few reasons. One, it was just too hot. When a property is that hot, I like to wait because I don't want to be right sort of in the middle of the think pieces and the sort of having my opinion steered, if you will. I want to give it some time to cool like a good pie, and then approach it on my own terms. So I started it. I liked it right away, of course. I'm a human being with eyes and ears. And then the second episode is when I thought, this might be too twee for me. And there are no spoilers here, but in episode two, we have a long montage uh, with sort of sun flares peeking through a winter branch. And the two, two of the protagonists spend a very long time making snow angels. And it's really cute. Was I jealous? Yeah, actually, prob probably thinking about it now. Jealousy was involved. But also, I was just like, this is getting a, it's a bit hallmark for my tastes which are uh, demonic, quite frankly. But then I kept going, and I was completely hooked by episode three, and the show's a total banger. It's great, it's very well-written, extremely well-cast, and has some incredible performances, no question. So I'm certainly not trying to drag Heartstopper. I loved Heartstopper, you should go watch it. And watching it, I was struck by a few things. One was, I could not have imagined having something like that, not only on TV, but be very popular on TV as a high school closeted queer. What a lifeline that would have been to, you know, see that it's okay that you being a teenager is messy, no matter how you approach it, no matter what your identity or orientation, that's just Lord of the Flies high schoolers. But getting to see narrative that was not just about trauma, that was about joy and the trauma was sort of just teenage trauma not just about being a queer kid just sweet and beautiful and the kind of high school relationship that uh you know could have been could have been nice i don't know i was alone watching real world new orleans and trying to astral project myself into the room closet of that house 
so I could be jointly adopted by all of those people. That's a really niche reference for someone of my age who lived in the United States at a certain time. Uh, does that resonate with you? Danny Roberts, are you listening? Anyway, please go watch Heartstopper. My other two takeaways from that, one, in case you weren't on the same page, representation matters. It is so important. It was beautifully handled in that show. And two, teenagers are monsters. So maybe this, I haven't thought this through. I'm just thinking this through now. People approach 13 years old. We give them one of those pre-charged visas with $50. We give them a cell phone. We give them a, a bag of Luna bars and fresh fruit and then just set them out for three months. And what happens, happens. You know, keep like loose supervision. We have sort of neighborhood watch folks prowling around. But just let them get some of the kinks out on their own and then they can come back and, you know, be a little more adjusted. That's my theory. <laughs> and my political platform, quite frankly. But let's move on to today's guest. Today's guest is from across the pond to the UK. My guest is Daryl W. Bullock. You know I love a triple barrel name, even when one of the barrels is just a letter. And I don't know what W stands for, and we never got to it. I'm hoping it's Winchester to stick with the triple barrel metaphor. But let's move on to Daryl's bio, shall we? Described as, quote, a veritable bard of the bent, broken, and baroque, so should we all be. Daryl W. Bullock is a feature writer and author who specializes in pop music history and LGBT issues. He has written for publications including, wait for it, The Guardian, Pitchfork, Literary Hub, Venue, Folio, Songwriter Magazine, and many others, and has been profiled in The Guardian, The Sunday Times, NGT, which I think is Gay Times, and has been featured on BBC One Channel 4. You know it. You love it. You don't subscribe to it because it's free. Pertinent to our interests as well, Daryl is the author of The World's Worst Records, Volumes 1 and 2. Also has a blog called The World's Worst Records. Uh, dot blogspot.com which you need to check out and host a radio show about bad records so um daryl likes things that go off the tracks as we do here at you made me queer daryl has also written florence foster jenkins colon the life of the world's worst opera singer you know that meryl street movie with stanley tucci in it too am i crazy David Bowie made me gay, colon, 100 years of LGBT music, the infamous Cherry Sisters, colon, God knows Daryl loves a colon, the worst act in vaudeville, and the Velvet Mafia, colon, the gay men who ran the swingin' 60s, and his next book, sadly, without a colon, it seems, is called Pride, Pop, and Politics, which will be published by Omnibus in June 2022. I discovered Daryl because I was having a work correspondence for You Made Me Queer. Don't ask me what about. You don't need to know what dad does when dad's at work, okay? But I was doing some letter writing, and the person I was writing to said, actually, funny story, your podcast is called You Made Me Queer. I'm currently reading a book called David Bowie Made Me Queer. And I said, ooh, and I Googled it, and I found Daryl, and I was entranced, I was trapped, in what you might call a tractor beam, but if you're from the UK, whatever the Doctor Who equivalent of that is, one of those trash can robots shot a ray on you. I'm so sorry. I don't know that reference. I know. I've seen the show for Billy Piper, obviously. Anyway, this isn't about me. Uh, it was a joy to talk to Daryl. 
it was a joy to really dive deep into what I would call one of the world's strongest daddy fetishes, which you will hear all about very soon. And great to hear from a thoughtful, funny person with a viewpoint. But don't trust my editorialization. Hear it straight from the triple barrel name himself. So please, please enjoy my conversation with the very special Daryl W. Bullock. You talk about so many things that r really speak to me uh, deep in my soul. And one of them is um, uh, basically like the worst music of all time. Yeah, I love bad records. <laughs> it's, it's that whole kitsch thing, isn't it? That, that, that gay guys or gay people love. I mean, I love yeah. B movie, you know, bad B movies as well, and and kind of kitschy, campy, you know, horrors from the from the fifties and sixties. So it all it's all part of the same mashup, I guess. Why do you think we like bad? I mean, listen, I'm not necessarily yaying or naying your stereotype yet, but <laughs> <laughs> but why do you think we like bad things? I, I, it's it's the camp value. It's it's the humor. It's it's kitsch. It's it's yeah. definitely we see i think we as a community i mean uh, it's a horrible generalization i know but i think <laughs> i think lgbtq people pick up on the humor in in those things we've had so much crap thrown at us over the years <laughs> yeah that we've got to find fun in things you know we have to find our own entertainment if you like yeah and so and so i think we look for we we all we're always looking for the for the entertainment element the funny element the humorous elements in things you know that's a really good point it's, yeah especially because you know a lot of queer folks came from dire circumstances or maybe had just dire um circumstances thrust upon them but i think also when i've talked about this on the show before so much of the pop culture narrative we grew up with excluded us so we had to get really good at code reading basically and like looking at things on a meta level and i think it makes us laser focused on like the best parts of bad things i think that's a really good point and i think you're absolutely right you know when you're growing up certainly people of my age group and 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 people you know uh, queer people older than me mm. we had no role models right so we had to find our own in some way we had to find there was something we needed to find something to latch on to mm. so so you, we were i guess and i keep saying we and that's a really awful thing because i can only talk of my own experience but i certainly was was always very keen to latch on to I suppose the other, the yes. different, the slightly, the, and, you, and you saw, you'd watch a film like, um, I don't know, whatever happened to baby Jane, and you'd see, <laughs> you know, um, Victor Bono, uh -huh. the actor in there who plays this incredibly camp music teacher, uh, and you kind of latch onto things like that. You recognize something in those characters. Yeah, that's funny too, because it's not necessarily you see a utopia and a place that speaks no. to you, you want to go to. Usually it's the opposite. Like I talked to uh, Dan Parent, who is the writer and creator of Archie Comics' first openly gay character, Kevin Keller. Yeah. And Dan was like, when I was a kid, I was really moved by this sort of suburban fantasy of john waters films which is like divine eating dog shit sure absolutely i love i love john waters movies of course i think there's definitely a lot easier now because you have an awful lot of positive role models in tv and film but you know i, I was born in 1964 mm. so back in the kind of the 70s as I was, as i was becoming aware of my own sexuality 
there were no role models for me in in Britain on TV at the time. You mean open, like out role models or? Well, the only gay characters or queer characters on TV, they were comic stereotypes of of the worst possible kind. They were they were really ugly guys in dresses, you know, supposedly <laughs> yeah. being funny and not being funny at all. And that was the punchline. Just like, I'm wearing a dress. Surprise. Exactly that. Yeah. You know, I've got two oranges shoved down my front. Look at me, aren't I funny? <laughs> and that's kind of what it was. That's what we had. We had character after character. So many sitcoms and uh, Saturday night entertainment shows on British TV mm-hmm. during the 1970s featured uh, uh, an effeminate or a camp character who was always the butt of the joke. It was never a sympathetic character. It was never anybody you would look at and aspire to be. Yeah. Yes, and usually like they did not have a love interest. And if they were no, involved never. in a romantic storyline, it's because they were basically a predator chasing uh, someone. You didn't even get that. Well, yes, you did get that, actually. You, you saw that a lot. You'd see that, you know, a camp guy in a, there was a, a famous comedy series over here, ran for about 10 years called Are You Being Served? Oh, God, of course. We got that over here. And you had a character in there called Mr. Humphreys, yeah. who never once in that show is, is it said that he's gay. He's referred to as a mummy's boy. He's referred to as, you know, but there are so many jokes about him and his sexuality. Yeah. Uh, and they're all awful. They're all, as you say, you know, every time you see him kind of, you know, lick his lips lasciviously, he's kind of watching <laughs> somebody bend over. Right. Like just a total ledge. It's exactly the kind of stuff that people now get arrested for, you know? Well, it's funny because as a kid, you're like, and I've spoken to people about this too, you watch these things and you think, okay, I have two paths before me, maybe three, if you count the seminary. Mm. The other two yeah. are, I can be real funny and then just kind of like disappear into the night when the show is over, or I can uh, be, be like a sex criminal. <laughs> well, it is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think we, we got a lot of American um, TV, uh, American cop dramas uh, imported into the into Britain in the 70s. And so we were, fi- we were seeing things like um, The Night Stalker. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and Columbo and Kojak and, and all those kind of things. And every time you saw a remotely effeminate character in there, yeah. they were always you know, either an intravenous drug user and a complete and utter loser, or they were they were just this kind of disgusting sex craving or, or sex mad lunatic. Yes. Yes, you're right. We work by, we, uh, look, I'm using the royal we just like you, you goddamn Brit. Yeah. Uh, we were the cautionary tale. And I think that is a perfect segue, Daryl, because we were the cautionary tale, uh, especially because when we were growing up and were of slightly different generations, but it was a time when people thought something was making you queer and they were very afraid something was making you queer, but they didn't know what so maybe it was kojak maybe it was columbo maybe it was (laughs) are you being served nobody knew uh now looking back of course as you've said we were the cautionary tale we know it was everything but one of the reasons i've called you here today is because now we are established professionals with microphones with good audio quality and i want (laughs) to give you the chance uh now in your grown-up shoes to point the finger once and for all daryl who and or what made you queer? 
I, I don't know. I don't <laughs> believe that one single thing made me queer, made me gay. You had one piece of homework, Daryl. One piece. I, I mean... I mean, I, the, I I remember I kind of I have a really really vivid memory mm. of being very young. I mean, pre you know maybe kind of eight years nine years old, uh, and my mother used to have um, a, a, a women's magazine once a week. <gasps> Do you remember what it was called? It was called My Weekly. Oh, great! And it was a very kind of old fashioned women's magazine, very much like Women's Realm or something like that. Mm. But it it would have a, a little bit of gossip, but not much. It was it, it was a couple of recipes and some kind of you know clothing patterns or you know instructions on how to stitch something together right. and 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 a and a lot of stories. She was she quite she liked to read my mum, so mm. she, so it, it had a fair bit of fiction. Oh, nice. Yeah, like and, like uh, it, uh, this is an American author, but like Daniel Steele, like or it, it, romantic kind of. Yeah, okay. yeah. It would have been a bit more, I suppose, uh, Barbara Cartland. But yes, okay. so like sort of flirty, that kind of thing. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Well, maybe not as flirty. Maybe a bit more staid and a bit more kind of flouncy rather than flirty. Okay. Um, and a little more, you know, um, attack of the vapors if a man looks at you kind of thing. Okay, so something to get you a little bothered while the ham's in the oven, but you're not going to, like, short circuit. That kind of thing, yeah. Okay. But I, but I remember really, really clearly, and as I said, I was, I was very young. I know, I, was, I know it was before I was 10 years old, so I'm saying, let's say eight or nine years old. Okay. Looking through one of these magazines uh, and seeing... Uh, not, not not a particularly good drawing, but a color illustration of a guy in a pinstripe suit and a bowler hat standing up on a tube train. Oh. And something in my mind went, <laughs> <Bing>! <laughs> Take me where you're going. Let me go to the office with you. It kind of was, you know, yeah. he was just, just you know, probably umbrella tucked under his under his arm, you know, briefcase in his hand. Oh, actually, it wasn't an umbrella. It was a news, rolled up newspaper under his arm. Uh, he had a he had a silver gray mustache, okay. bowler hat. So he would have, you know, he, the character was very clearly in his kind of fifties, I guess. Okay, so this is a bit daddy trope. Yeah, okay. Do you know, all the years, all the years. <laughs> <laughs> I always liked older guys, and I always liked older, well-dressed guys. Well, um, starting there, I guess you'd have that kind of. I, I, you, if you read, um, if you've ever read, you must have read. You know, plenty of Armistead, more pin. It's that kind of preppy guy that Michael talks about. That he fancies. Yes. Um, I always had a thing for older guys until I got to the age where there are no older guys anymore. So I've gone younger. <laughs> Please, but, um, impossible, but also good for you. Well, widen your tastes. I've I've had to go younger because there's just nobody there. <laughs> there's no one left. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm 57 now. There is I can't I can't go. Oh, if I, I'm, I'm not a gerontophile. You're a you're a young daddy. You're still a spring chicken. But anyway, here we are. <laughs> we we digress. But I, but I kind of I always I always had this thing for older guys, yeah. and I don't know if that stems from having a a, a difficult relationship with my father. Mm. Maybe I was looking for a father figure. Possibly mm -hmm. I don't know, but certainly. I, that image is kind of burned into my mind and I, and I can see it, you know, I was, as I said, eight years old, nine years old. And I remember when that magazine was about to be thrown away because we didn't, <laughs> we didn't recycle in those days. We threw things away. Sure. I ripped that page out and I stuck it onto cardboard <gasps> and I cut around this image of this guy in a pinstripe suit and I hid it in a drawer in my bedroom. What an image. Now, because I was going to ask if you, when you were looking at that, was sort of surreptitiously, like your mother did not catch you, and she certainly didn't catch you cutting this out? No. Well done. No, no absolutely not. Um, we also used to have um, 
we had great big catalogs, I suppose, like like a Sears catalog oh. or something. Um, oh yeah, with you know, kind of like a department store in a book. Yeah, um, and, <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're listening and you're under uh, seventeen, yes, it, it was like a store in a book, a printed. It book. really was. <laughs> uh, we didn't have Sears in Britain, but we had companies like Littlewoods and Grattan and, and Great Universal and all these other stores. Beautiful. And I, I and and I, I, funny enough, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts, and I, um, it was with the guy from uh, the Kids in the Hall, oh, whose name I've. It's either from. Paul Bellini or Scott Thompson, both legends. It was Scott. It was Scott Thompson. Oh, love Scott. And talking about the same kind of experience. Yeah. About flicking through mag uh, um, catalogs and looking for the underwear, or the the guys in their pajamas, or whatever else it might have been. Yes. It comes up and a so, lot. Well, well, that's all we had. That was that was our gay porn because yeah. there wasn't anything else available. That's right. And certainly not when you're just coming into your teenage years. You're just starting to hit puberty. You'll start just starting to become aware of what's happening in to you. Yes. There's nothing else available at all. Your sisters might have. Uh, they have their um, you know picture story magazines. Uh, with you know lots of pimply spotty kids mooning <laughs> over other pimply spotty kids <laughs> but i had no interest in pimply spotty kids i liked i wanted men you wanted a banker i wanted a man yeah. that's what i wanted yeah, sure and i knew from a very early age what i wanted was a man i didn't want a boy i didn't want a twink i wanted what you would nice call a daddy yeah there you go even from age eight now what i want to know and the answer might be no and i'll be a little sad did you name this sort of fictional tube riding man <laughs> <laughs> did even alias i i don't recall that's fine i honestly don't recall i'd love to i wish i could say yes i called him such and such <laughs> I, I don't remember i don't think so it's fine I, I, i'm sure actually do you know he must have had this a name in the story you're right and i must have it must have used that but it would have been nothing, it would have been something prosaic like, you know, Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones or Mr. Robinson or something. Right, something very central casting. Listen, editors and writers of uh, My Weekly, if you are listening to the show, and I hope you are, <laughs> you know the picture we're talking about. So send us that article. How great would that be? So what ended up happening? And I love that image. But where did that go? Like, how long did it stay in your drawer? And where did it end up? Well, it kind of stayed. It kind of stayed. <laughs> <laughs> You're holding it. It right kind of stayed in my drawer <laughs> until I met someone who looked so similar, <gasps> and that person turned out to be my best friend's dad. Oh boy! No, nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. <laughs> Just but I, over the clothes stuff. The first person I came out to outside of my family was my best friend, and I did tell him that I fancied his father. What on earth did he say back? He, what you know, he was great about it. I don't, I don't know if it actually, it, it, I don't really know if it registered completely. But we stayed friends. He kind of, he was, he was great. He was really. Uh, kind of just shrugged it off, I think, and, and we, didn't, we didn't really talk about it again. But I did once tell him that I really fancied his dad. The, so woke. Good of him to just be like, that's cool. That's like two coming outs where one, you say to your friend, I'm gay or I'm queer or whatever. Mm. And then the second one is, and uh, what's your dad doing Friday night? <laughs> <laughs> that could be weird. I mean, that's that could be a sitcom. I, I suppose it could be. Daryl and the dad. I'd watch it. Anyway, so so that never panned out. Um, but once you found, uh, you were able to move your fantasies from sort of the printed image to the real person, as it were. Um, yeah, I guess I guess that's kind of what happened. I mean, that was about the same time that I 
came out to my own father mm-hmm. and I came out when I was to my own father when I was about 13, 14 years wow, old. Wow, quite young. Yeah, I, 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 I knew. There was, there was kind of no question in my life, mm-hmm. that, that no question in my mind at all that I was anything but gay. Mm. I, I knew from a very early age that, that I wasn't interested in girls, although I continued to date girls and I dated girls right up until I was about 18. Yeah, oh boy. Yeah, sorry to, to all of those girls. I did that as well. You know, and I, I was engaged when I was 18 to a girl. Um, oh my goodness! Because you you kind of you have to kind of give in to peer. Well, you don't have to anymore. You but you felt compelled to give in to peer pressure. And I I yeah. came from a family of six kids, right. all of whom were you know getting married, getting partnered up, all of whom was were straight or so we thought at the time. Um, and so the the peer pressure was enormous. And and you've got friends, you, you you've you've left school, you're getting you're starting your first job, you're hanging around with other guys and going to pubs and meeting girls, and you have to play the game, don't you? Well, you certainly did that. There's certainly an enormous a lot of pressure. And also, I mean, same-sex marriage was legalized very recently. And so it, what other path could you imagine for yourself, really? Well, you couldn't because you'd have to go back to this idea that, you know, we we discussed earlier on about what you were seeing right. uh, on on TV and film, and every portrayal of uh, a homosexual mm. you saw was awful. Right. You know, you every time you saw somebody, they were they were this wretched, diseased person, yeah. and you did not want to end up like that. So you you fought against it. Um, you fought to to um to fit in. You you fought really hard not to let your own needs and desires and and your natural self out you try to keep it in you try to hold it you know inside and and just go along with what everybody else thought you should do well right and i i can relate to that too i dated women in my uh teens certainly Mm. and for a while i just kept saying well you know maybe you'll just get used to it or maybe it won't you know there's a part of you that wants something else but you can just deny that part the way you deny yourself like a second bowl of ice cream and your life goes on but i've never denied a second bowl of ice no, cream and, and listen nor never. should you and i never will again <laughs> but I, I kind of it sounds awful now it sounds absolutely terrible but although i had several you know teenage girlfriends um and, and younger i mean you know i was I, even pre-teen i was kind of always hanging around with the girls for some reason or another <laughs> usually because i did not because i ever wanted to get inside their knickers it's because i wanted to get inside their record collections <laughs> yes um, the very first girl i went out with and i was really young at this point maybe kind of seven or eight years old come on like was this a date kind of yes and kind of you know like a, it would have been a, a kind of a school kind of group getting together at a at a house for a probably a saturday afternoon or a sunday afternoon or something okay and you know in in ridiculous innocence of a kind of seven or eight year old kind of asking if this girl will be my girlfriend and the only reason i did that is because she had a copy of um the beatles single a hard day's night (laughs) and i wanted it (laughs) <laughs> I really wanted it because I'd never heard the B-side and I wanted that record so, and I got that record. <laughs> well, 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 okay, so talk me through, because was this like a dowry situation? Like how did you, by dating her, suddenly get possession of her record or did you steal it? Uh, I know I wouldn't have stolen it. I wouldn't have had the guts to right. steal it. Well, I might have done actually. I was a little sod. I could easily have stolen it. <laughs> Who's to say? I, I, even, I, I know I could easily have done that. I, I actually, I, I 
did creep into my neighbor's house one day and steal a record from them. That's fine. So it's quite possible I did. The statute of limitations has passed. So uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not worried. And they won't. They won't know. She's probably dead. Um, God bless. Not... <laughs> R.I.P. Um, she wants that record back. By the way. Yeah, she can't have it. So. <laughs> you made me queer. We'll be right back. And now back to more. You made me queer. So I want to go back to this fiance because how did you get out of that? I, I, I broke up with her. Um, we, we were, I, I just, I, I just told her that things weren't working out. That we weren't happy. I didn't want to get married. And so we broke up, obviously it broke her heart. Yeah. Poor girl, Lorraine. She was really upset. Uh, then a week later I was, I was in a pub. I was 18 years old. I should not only just, you know, only just legally started drinking, although I've been doing it for a few years. Sure. <laughs> Um, with with a couple of friends of mine, you know, ex school friends who are now kind of you know like me in their in their earliest jobs, mm. um, and I was incredibly miserable, really miserable, mostly about what I'd done to her, about how I'd upset her, and how I'd been uh, yeah, a bit of a pig over over breaking up. So I I begged her to go back out with me. Oh no! And we went out, and I've I've told this story to other people, but I mean, we went out for about a week or so, maybe two weeks again afterwards. But when we started talking about um, about getting married and stuff like that, I couldn't go through with it because you know we'd be st- we'd stop and look in windows. She'd be looking at dresses, and I'd be thinking I'd look better in it than you would, oh, dear. Bless. So, so. <laughs> Just the poor. I mean, listen, I have so much sympathy for your situation because you know I experienced a different shade of it, but also enormous sympathy for her who had no idea what was going on and was just trying to make it work. And then here you show up again saying, I've made a horrible mistake and uh, your heart breaks, huh? Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, but I think an awful lot of LGBTQ people would have been in very similar situations. Absolutely, absolutely. I can't feel guilty about it because, you know, I can't can't feel guilty for an entire community, you know? Uh, Listen, if you want to point a finger, and I encourage you to do so on the show, blame it at sort of the social norms that guided you into that situation and forced you there. Well, I'd I'd like to blame John Inman, who was the guy that played (laughs) Mr. Humphreys and Are You Being Served? Okay, go on. Because I hate that character so much. I detest that character. Yeah. I, I think he, that character did irreparable damage to um, the fledgling queer community in Britain. Isn't it? I hate it's, him. I mean, listen, uh, A, I love a big swing, so good for you. Good for you for using the H word. And I'm curious too, because one of the shows I think of first is Therese Company, um, which was yeah. a big hit. And of course we had uh, Jack Tripper. What's the actor? John Ritter? playing this yeah. straight guy who would also always masquerade as a queer person to like for a social advantage basically and that the way that informed i think so i mean there were many other shows like soap and things like that mm. but because for some people it's a weird simultaneous thing where one it's like there's queer something on tv at least it's in the zeitgeist yep. which can feel like a win but then sometimes you're like but this is confusing a lot of people which is not a win it's interesting you mentioned soap. We got we had soap broadcast over here as well. What's that about 78, 79, 80? That sounds right. I guess. So uh Jody was one of the first sympathetic gay characters I'd ever seen on TV. Yeah, played by Billy Crystal. Yeah. Uh, do you know and <sighs> I loved Soap because finally I, I was watching a queer character who not only stuck up for himself but was very clearly loved by his family. Yes. Um, 
and was was nurtured. I mean, yeah, I mean, there was there were, there were members for somebody like you know, Bert, his stepfather, really didn't get it right. at all. But but his mother adored him. Uh, his brother would do anything for him. Yeah. And there's a story in there's a storyline in soap where where um where Jody um meets uh, is, I think she's a lesbian, isn't she? Mary and they, they I'm not Mary's the mother, but he he meets a woman and they kind of pair up together for a long for a, like a whole season. But that's very similar to what we were doing. Well, that's right. And that's what I remember. And that's why I feel conflicted about it, because I think it can it almost sort of sent a message of, you know, he was a gay character, but then he just met the right woman sort of. And then because I think it became a sexual relationship. So just I don't know you. We had so few uh, queer marshals. Sure. So we were very sure. protective of how they represented uh, queerdom at large. Oh, absolutely. I, I totally agree. And now, uh, and now we have so many. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go on. So, so we left. Got what was her name? Your fiance, Lorraine. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we we left Lorraine. Yeah. Probably shouldn't say that in case she listens. But you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, was. sorry, Lorraine. She's probably dead. Uh, Lorraine, listen. If you're alive and you're listening, Daryl has your Beatles record, and it's your right to go over and get it. After all, he put. <laughs> no, you no, no, no. It wasn't Lorraine's Beatles record. The, the Beatles record came from an earlier girlfriend. Oh, that's right. That was the seven-year-old girlfriend. That was the seven or eight-year-old, and I don't remember her. No, I, oh, hang on. Do I remember her name? No. Oh, Tracy. No, that was a different one. That was somebody well, else. Well, she knew who she is, so if if you're alive and you're listening, go get that record. And Lorraine, God yeah, bless yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, uh, Go onward, Christian soldier. Uh, so, Daryl, <laughs> so who else? Um, so we've kind of jumped around a bit. Was there something in between the man on the tube and uh, I guess like the the show girlfriends. Um, I I guess the next obvious thing for me, and although, as I said, I I, I knew really young, I knew it from a really young age that mm. I was gay. And I, I did tell my my father when I was very young. I went yes, that's right. I went through a I went through a really difficult phase when I it's puberty, isn't it? Puberty sends everybody loopy. <laughs> yes. Um, and I was I was doing quite well at school. I was I was I was I was doing okay, and and big things were expected of me mm. of I was the youngest of six kids and, and my father was convinced I'd amount to something mm. you know I, I could go off and get a, a proper job or go to university or you know or become a, a lawyer or a vet something you know something with a bit of cachet yeah and then puberty kind of took over <laughs> and I suddenly started to get bullied at school and I started to really hate school it wasn't major bullying mm. but it was just that insidious constant name calling and you know i wasn't getting beaten up or or threatened in any way but but just the constant kind of name calling which was wearing me down yep so i went through this phase when i was about about that age about 13 14 of running away from home a lot i and i would disappear i'd just get on a train and, and go to the other end of the country or, oh wow you know or a coat yeah i did that a lot like how long would you be gone for Oh, um, no more than a couple of days, usually. Okay. I'm from a, a, a city called Gloucester, which is in the West Country. Okay. Just kind of um, near the south, near South Wales. Oh, I see. And that. I would jump, I, I did jump on a train and go all the way up to Liverpool, which is 200 plus miles away. Wow. Um, I was obsessed with the Beatles. I still am to an extent. So, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I did at the age of 15, jump on a train and go to Liverpool. And just try and join. You're like, guys, hear me out. You just need one more member. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be I'll be the hype girl in front who gets the crowd riled up. I must have been about 15, 14, 15, because that was before John Lennon died and I was uh. 16 when he died. So I was about 14, 15 years old when I did that. Okay. And I, I ended up being brought home by the police. Wow. 
Yeah, not not Sting and and you know Andy and Stewart, <laughs> yeah. the other police. There's a very specific era of Sting. I think there's two when I have a strong crush in him, and then other eras when I absolutely do not. But we digress. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember how we got to this stage. Yeah, so you were telling I was, me. Oh, oh yes, I was at school and I yes. was I was doing really well, and then everything just kind of went to pot because I was I was not happy. Yeah. And I was I was running away and I was doing all this stuff. And it was at that point when I decided my father and I had an had an argument in in the early hours of the morning, one one midweek morning, maybe three o'clock, four o'clock, I'd been brought home by the police again. This used to happen frequently. And it's not because I was breaking any laws, it's because my, my father was um a senior officer with the ambulance ambulance service. Oh, so, and so he knew them. They all, all know each other. Yeah. The police and the ambulance and the fire people all know each other. So if I was seen, rather than take me to a police station, rather than do anything else, they'd just say, Daryl, get in the back of the car, take me home to your dad. Gotcha. That's what happened. And that's ha this happened this particular night. I was trying to hitchhike. <laughs> I was trying to hitchhike out of town, for God's sake, 14, oh. 15 years old, trying to hitchhike out of town. Imagine what your child idiot. doing that. What a time. Yeah, you know, what an idiot. I was probably still in my school uniform or something stupid like that. <laughs> oh, God. But, um, Police brought me home and my dad and I had a massive row and he said, you know, why do you keep doing this? Do you not know what you're doing to your mother? And I turned around and blurted out uh, because I'm gay and I can't handle it. Wow. And that was my coming out to my dad when I was around about 14 years old. What a moment. Yeah. And do you recall what he said back? Uh, he just kind of looked at me, didn't say much. And then kind of, you know, go get to bed and don't tell your mother. Right, right. <laughs> and that was it. That was the, that was the conversation. And we never talked about it again. Wow. We never talked about it again. And Well, we did. We talked about it many years later, but not for a long time. Right. Um, did it feel, because I mean, you know, it is what it is. It's sometimes it could be nice to imagine, you know, we talked about it and you got some sort of closure or release. But did it feel different, at least just knowing he knew? It felt different in two ways. One, it felt great because I'd finally said it to somebody, mm -hmm. no matter who it was. I'd, I'd, I'd said that those words had come out of my mouth for the first time to yeah. anybody, really. Yeah. Um, and it made a big difference to the way my father treated me. And we didn't really recover from that. We... Oh, okay. Uh, and, and, don't, and don't misunderstand me. He was never... Uh, he was never violent towards me. Mm -hmm. He he was he was a good provider for his family, including me at that time. But our relationship changed. Yeah, we were never close again after that. And it wasn't really until the last couple of years of his life, after I'd moved away from home, uh, that we started to rebuild that relationship. So maybe uh, he died in eighty six. This would have been. Let me think about this. If I was fourteen. That must have been seventy eight, seventy nine, seventy eight. Let's say so. And for the next five years, we had a really strained relationship, really strained relationship. Gosh. He died when I was 22. So luckily, the last couple of years, we 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 were getting on okay. But by that point, I'd moved away from home. Yeah. So there was a distance between us. That made, that made it a lot easier for us to talk to each other. I'm so glad you were able to, you know, in some way sort of reestablish that connection because it oh, yeah. wasn't really that long after you came out that he passed. 
No, it was uh, it was very sudden, and it was it was as I said, I was twenty two, so that was nineteen eighty six, September eighty six. He died. Yeah, um, he was only sixty three, and and he'd been fed so much. Of course, he had no resources, no information about you know what to do when your son comes out to you. So no. there's nothing available. Absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. So it must have been very strange for him. Yeah. Um, and I, that's why I don't blame him. I, I've, I've never blamed my father for his reaction. Right. Because he had, like, like I said, you know, I had, I had no positive role models. He had nothing to compare this alien now living in his home yeah, to. Uh, 100%. He had nothing to compare me to. 100%. So I think so, uh, you don't blame your father, which I think is great. So what, who I think you could blame is the police if we want to blame people for making you queer, because they're the ones who caught you and took you home and were sort of the catalyst for that moment. Uh, yeah, you could say that, but they were also, they were also the catalyst for kind of that, that freedom. Yeah, that, that's a good That point. moment that allowed me suddenly to, for the first time in my life, to, to say those words out loud and to trigger the person that I am now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll call it like second degree. It's like a misdemeanor making you queer yeah, rather than fine. a full <laughs> crime. <laughs> I like that. That's a beautiful story. So we have, oh boy, we've jumped around a lot. And then you came out to your friend after, and then... Yeah, not yeah. long after, but after, yes. And then was there a big, I want to know if there was a big crush maybe, because we had Man in the Tube, and then... Was the the Beatles was it an artistic crush or was there a sexual crush too? Um, I, no, I I never felt anything sexual towards the Beatles. Um, oh, it's much you're as the I only love them person in Britain who probably could say that. <laughs> I genuinely didn't because I, I think because although clearly they were older than me, they weren't that much older than me. And my oh yeah, too young. I was always more interested in at that point and older guys. I do remember yeah really clearly <laughs> um, several. Uh, actors in in films and tvs and having massive crushes on them oh yeah who have you got um i remember having this huge crush on dabney coleman dudley coleman no dabney coleman dabney coleman dabney. play uh is an american character actor um quite tall distinguished big yes. moustache very kind of very kind of um clony moustache he plays the boss in nine to five yeah, that's absolutely right. He was also Beverly Hillbillies. Dabney, yeah, yeah. first of all, Dabney is a name we do not hear enough these days. But uh, yeah, Dabney Coleman, it's so like... There's, there's a scene, there's a scene in... I've, t I've told friends about this, so it's, this is no surprise to them. Okay. But there's, there's a scene in 9 to 5 where, where um, the, the Lily and, uh, and Dolly and, and Jane have... Um, they've kidnapped him and they're keeping him chained up in his, in his bedroom. Yes. And there's a scene where he's kind of there's a scene where he's kind of hanging from the ceiling yeah. in his pajamas um in chains. Yes. And yeah, that worked for me. <laughs> that worked. For me. I mean, he definitely he's got that sort of mustache. He very much looks like someone who would be taking the tube to a bank. Um the yeah, yeah, yeah. the whole chain harness thing is a bit of a left turn here, which I mean G uh, that's great. So this was the discovery of when you were into hardcore um, <laughs> Dolly Parton style bondage as well, potentially. No, I, I, I'm, I'm not massively into it. I mean, I, I get it. I get the kink, but it's sure. not really my thing. But okay. I kind of, um, I'm a huge control freak. <laughs> it's about that. And there's definitely a kind of, you know, the thought of me as a younger guy telling a much older guy to behave himself, oh. do as you're told. What a script flip. That really turns me on, you know.
there was definitely something in that there. So uh, interesting that you had the daddy thing, but you wanted to daddy the daddy, even as a child. Yeah, I've definitely, I've, I've, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an awful control freak. I've got real issues. <laughs> <laughs> my, my husband will tell you now, I've got terrible, terrible control issues. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and I've always, I've always had a bit of a, I've always been a bit bossy and a bit kind of um, smart-mouthed and, and um yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely. Even though I, I was always attracted to older guys, yeah, the attraction was not about them being my boss. It was always the other way around. Well, it makes sense. You were lawless. You were riding the UK rails as like a a preteen, <laughs> <laughs> just a total boss. But yeah, it's <laughs> terrible. Absolutely. <laughs> Bless, bless that. I, I sanction this. So, uh, Dabney Coleman's the main crush, you would say? No, but I mean, I, I think anybody that had that look. Yeah, gotcha. So, if I saw maybe somebody like um, Ed Asner. Oh, wow. Or or Wilfred Brimley. I know you, I think you mentioned him recently, didn't you? On one of, the, one of your podcasts, yeah. Wilfred Brimley. Or um, other guys like that. Um, I remember seeing um, Harvey Corman in um, High Anxiety, in the Mel Brooks film, High Anxiety. Yes, yes. And, and there's a similar scene in there where he's, he's chained in his pyjamas in a wardrobe. Right. Um, and that did it for me as well. Maybe it's pajamas. Also interesting, funny because I mean, if we want to, if we want to go to Wilfred Brimley, uh, I, that I think ties in with Dabney because they have these are like the central casting, like Wild West saloon dudes. Uh, Harvey Corman, less so. I, I think with all of these people, it was definitely the facial hair helps. Okay, definitely facial hair helps. Yes, but there was that kind of slightly avuncular, but also very stern thing right right which the, really yeah yeah because it, it, yes it was definitely i have a type or i certainly had a type well yeah. and i get the power fantasy because these are all sort of like stuffy shirt bankers yeah. who basically like 14 year old punk ass daryl wanted to kind of like uh you know chain up and like yeah boss around really you're the tycoon now I know it's mad, isn't it? This is what I am now. It's ridiculous, but that's absolutely it. There you go. You that's, that's... I've, I've become what I always fancied. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Dreams do come true. It does get better. Uh, so anything else you want to blame, Daryl? This is your last chance. I, I, I don't want to blame necessarily, but, but we've, talk, we've talked a lot about music and things today. Yeah. And, and the, the next big awakening, if you like, mm. in, 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 in my 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 the next awakening in my awakening the next <laughs> the next thing that really brought brought my awareness about was hearing um tom robinson sing a song called glad to be gay okay how old were you do you remember the first time you heard that um i do i remember it really clearly really clearly um it had been out for a little while and then i was watching a um a show on on tv late night after everybody else had gone to bed you know you'd sneak down and watch tv when nobody else was around mm -hmm. because you might see somebody that was you know a bit more your type or you know your your you could identify with from your community absolutely late night tv god bless yeah totally absolutely and there was a program on it was a uh, a documentary film of a benefit show called The Secret Policeman's Ball or The Secret Policeman's Other Ball. And Tom Robinson was on there performing Glad to be Gay. He did an acoustic version. And it's I don't I don't know if you know the song. If you don't, you have to look it up. Okay. It's a really, really important song. It's about um gay life in Britain in the late 70s. 
it's it's really vicious, pointed, angry. And it was the first time I'd seen somebody sing basically a punk song hmm. about homosexuality or about LGBTQ people uh, because it sings about gay men, it sings about lesbians and, and, and all sorts of things. And it was the first time I realised that music for queer people could be more than just disco. Yeah. And God bless disco. But yeah, I mean, this is, a, you're right. And it's not a coded message by any stretch. It's a very overt Absolutely. Uh, message, it looks like. Yeah. This was smacking you in the face. And this was a man standing on stage screaming these lyrics at you. Right. Sing if you're glad to be gay, sing if you're happy that way. Um, being a lesbian's wonderful fun, you know, being a lesbian's wonderful fun, you ain't fit to mother a daughter or son. It's shocking, shockingly visceral song. Um, and it absolutely opened my eyes and changed my life. Wow. I think almost everything I've done since then has in some way been colored by watching that performance. Isn't that wild? Mm. I think about that often because I, in a different context, I was speaking to someone about just not knowing. I mean, certainly we know as people who work in radio and podcast, you don't know who is listening to what you do. You don't know the effect anything you do is having on people. Certainly you as an author, uh, you don't know where your work is going to wind up. But something, that moment, you hearing that alone, watching that on TV and having the course of your life change, that's fascinating. Mm. I went out the next day, or maybe not the next day, but certainly very soon afterwards and bought that record. Yeah. And genuinely, that moment changed my life. Wow. I, I, for the first, that was my first positive queer role model, really. Right. Um, Would be Tom Robinson. In Britain. I mean, I, I, was, I was seeing lots of imported, you know, ro- lots of imported, but all, all the guys I was attracted to, um, so, and I wasn't attracted to Tom Robinson. Uh-huh. It was the message. He was much but too young. All of the people <laughs> I'd been, yeah, absolutely, there's that too. Yes, of course. <laughs> but all of the people I'd kind of fantasized about yeah. and I've been watching in TV and films were, were straight guys. Right. Yeah. You know, and, all the people yeah. we talked about just now were straight. Um, right. This is the first time I'd seen, um, a really angry gay man singing about things from the gay experience and my getting the message, my absolutely hitting me to the core of my... Yeah, and I like that it came through punk because, you know, and this was before, this is 1978, so this is before Boy George and folks like that. Oh, and years before. I think there was, a, you know, in a certain sort of uh, marginalized people, when they make their case, sometimes feel like they need to sugarcoat it a bit. Uh, you know, you don't want to yep. alienate anyone. So to see someone do it with such aggression and raw emotion is such a bold, brave move that, I mean, certainly as you, it sounds like, you know, um, being on track to being quite an individual from a young age, uh, you found a kindred spirit. Yeah. Can I, can, I just, can I just tell you one thing that happened today? If you want, you can cut this out if you don't want to use it. I'd, I'd love it. But um, I mentioned that experience and that song is kind of my coming out song in an article i wrote for for a magazine i can't remember it might have been the quietest i I forget who it was for Mm -hmm. and shortly after it was published the producer of the show whose name i've completely forgotten i'm sure it's lewis martin lewis martin lewis okay the guy that produced the show the the secret policeman's ball that that performance came from Mm -hmm. he read the article read (sighs) my kind of coming out story and got in touch with me Oh my God. And said how grateful he was that 
that performance or or uh, uh, something that he'd been involved with had had done that for someone. Oh my god! Um, he was straight, although he really wanted Tom to perform that song, and he was incredibly moved by the audience, who the predominantly straight was singing along to his his song, um, and he felt it was an important moment. But to have somebody else you know, who was who was affected by that, whose whose life it changed, really really meant something to him, and that that's. That's really important to That's me. That's phenomenal and what an amazing connection. And that takes mm. me back too to that original airing. Was there any pushback? when? Because that was aired in the late 70s, you said, right? I, I, I think this would have been around about 1980, 81. Okay. It was, the, the, the original recording was 78. Wow. Uh, and, and this was maybe a couple of years later. Oh my gosh. Okay, wow. But um, was there um, any sort of like public, like people were like, can you believe that was on TV or was it sort of taken as entertainment? I don't think so because um, Channel Four, the the, the channel it, it aired on, was was known from the outset as pretty kind of uh, controversial and subversive and, and different. So they, I, I, and it was very late at night. So I, I, I don't I don't recall any any um, major kind of brouhaha in the newspapers. There might have been. I, I don't remember. Hmm. Well, I think that's a perfect button and a final blame uh, to blame Tom Robinson at the <laughs> secret secret policeman's ball. Is that what it was called? Secret policeman's ball. Secret policeman's oh, yeah. ball. Bl Bless him. Tom I've, I've spoken to Tom since then, and and oh. and he he's re he's a lovely, lovely, lovely man. Such a nice guy. He just seems like an absolute badass. So everyone, listen to that, uh, but don't do it yet because before I let you go, Daryl, and I don't want to because I really get the sense you have many stories to tell uh, but before i say goodbye would you like to play a game sure oh good great this game is called queer queerer queerest Queer okay so i'm going to give you three things your job is to put them in order from least queer to most queer and tell me why okay you ready any questions no no i think i can figure that bit out okay thing number one am radio okay you have that in the UK, right? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, we had the same sort of thing, yes. Okay. AM radio. Medium wave over here, yeah. Okay. It's sort of like the uh, <laughs> the dark side of the radio band. Um, anyway, thing number two, and I know you know this because I found it on your blog and I was mesmerized, Orville the Green Duck. <laughs> <laughs> so I will let you explain when the time comes who and or what Orville the Green Duck is. Okay. Thing number three, the social phenomenon when someone you don't recognize is waving at you, so you start to wave back, and then you realize they were waving at someone else. <laughs> I did that yesterday to someone. <laughs> <laughs> so let's recap. Thing number one, AM radio. Thing number two, Orville the Green Duck. Thing number three, that social phenomenon when someone's waving at you, you don't know, you wait back and realize it was not for you. Least queer to most queer and why? Least queer would be uh, AM radio. Um, <laughs> and I guess because, because it's just so dull um, and, and so read. ordinary. And, and internet radio is great. And, and you know, mm -hmm. and... Um, the, the, they're a dark wave. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, it's, a it's a bit different over here because we get, you know, we had medium wave, which is kind of our main, our, our main thing. We had radio one on there and radio two and British radio has always been as dull as ditch water. There's so little <laughs> happening. We don't have the phenomenon of, of so many different individual, um, local stations mm. that you have in the States and 
Canada. We don't have that in Britain. Mm-hmm. So radio is basically run by the BBC, and it's as boring as hell. Oh, bless. So that would have to be leased. Okay, good one. Because you, you, you never heard you never heard a queer artist on on radio until the nineteen nineties, you know, or maybe the nineteen eighties. I would still say I think even in Canada, AM radio is like where you go to hear traffic updates. And that's it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. They're definitely less, you know, least queer. Yeah. We all have our kinks. Unless, you know, a traffic accident had been caused by somebody because they were wearing the wrong kind of heels when they were driving. <laughs> that's right. And you, you know, know it's happened. Um, okay. So then what's queerer? Well, that would have to be the wave. <laughs> the wave. Because, you know, okay. you, you can style it. No matter what, no matter what's happening, you can style that one out pretty, pretty quickly. It doesn't have to last that long. Okay. You can, it, once you realize you made that mistake, I don't know what you do with that hand. I tend to kind of, look at it as if i'm smelling something i might have stuck my finger in you oh, know that's almost wor- wait so is that what you did yesterday when it happened or the other day I'm, I'm actually walking myself down the street in my mind now and trying to remember what happened i kind of did yeah but I, i've usually got a dog with me so i can do that i can just pretend that i've just picked up some poop okay uh, or something and and it's and then just kind of brush it away as it or just just you know pretend i've got a a, a a a bag of dog poop in my hand and just kind of throw it great save so if you don't have a dog just carry a bag of dog poop and then you can blame it on that yeah 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 something like that that would that would work great advice just style it out you know it's fine i mean i mean we all do it we all we all think we, we're being waved down we absolutely aren't it's always somebody else it's never us you gotta own up to it so that takes us to queer wrist Oh, the queerest would have to be Orville. It would have to be. Now, talk us through. Talk us through the whole thing, please. Um, it's a long story. Orville is um, Orville's a ventriloquist puppet. It's a green duck. Um, <laughs> the, the ventriloquist ventriloquist was a guy called Keith Harris. He's sadly no longer with us. Mm. Um, but he had he had several puppets. But the two best known were an, an orangutan called Cuddles <laughs> and a green. And a green duck. And the reason he's green, apparently, I only found this out recently, is because um, Keith Harris was appearing in a theatre here in Bristol. And he found some green fuzzy felt behind the stage and thought, oh, I can do something with that. Use what you got. So that's what. So he 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 created this this awful kind of. Orville is a baby duck, although it's about you know four foot high, so it's enormous. Disgusting. It wears a nappy. Okay. It, it is disgusting. It's 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 neon green. Yeah. Wears a nappy. <laughs> talks with a kind of uh, talks with a lisp and a, and a really kind of high pitched whiny voice. Oh no. Um and and permanently has a man's hand up his arse. He's permanently being fisted. I mean, queerest. So it's definitely the queerest. If, if, you're, if you're permanently being fisted and you're being fisted on stage for your entire life, that has to be the queerest, doesn't it? I don't know if that's queerest as much as it is paralyzing, but uh, <laughs> you do you, Orville. You do you. Get it, girl. Uh, so just to recap very quickly, you said least queer is AM radio. Queerer yeah. is the social phenomenon with the waves, etc. Definitely. And queerest is Orville, the uh, perpetually fisted green duck. So That's the let one. me just c- quickly check your marks because this is a very... Um, academic test ah. one two three and i'm happy to report you got an a plus 100 uh daryl you are in fact a queer person fantastic yes. now i can I have that in a certificate yeah it's going to be in the mail four to six weeks and i'll need oh, 80, 80 bucks cash that can go next to my um my reverendship on the wall <laughs> we look lovely very equal i think of equal importance um so now daryl more <laughs> 
more um, on my side, of course. Uh, so the time has come to say goodbye. But before I let you go, anything you want to plug? <laughs> I'm a complete shill, of course. <laughs> Bring it. Um, my new book is out in Britain on the 9th of June. It's called Pride, Pop and Politics, mm. and it deals with 50 years of queer politics in Britain um, covering the fifth this is the 50th anniversary of the first pride march in britain this year awesome so it basically covers 50 years of the pride movement in this country um but through the music of the time through all the musicians that were involved through the musicians that became political activists uh that kind of thing sounds incredible pride pop and politics yes it's a great book it's a very good book <laughs> <laughs> completely unbiased review. You'll love it. Uh, and of course, if you're listening, Daryl has written many other books that are very well known. Uh, the one that I was most aware of was David Bowie Made Me Gay because uh, we have, obviously, it overlaps with my personal interests. So please check that book out. Buy it wherever you can. Try not to buy it from Amazon, if I may put in my two cents. Mm. Okay, great. Uh, wonderful. Uh, and any anywhere people could reach you or a URL you want people to access? Um dwbullock.com will take you to my website or you can find me on Facebook or Twitter. dwbullock on Twitter is probably the easiest thing to do. Do it, everyone. And Daryl, I want to thank you because I was very queer when this conversation started and talking to you has made me queerer than ever. <laughs> <laughs> then my work is done. God bless you. Thank you so much, Daryl. You're more than welcome, Trevor. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm happy to hear it. Take care. Thank you, now. Bye-bye. Okay, and that is our show, but wait, but wait, I didn't want to put this plug off the top because that was Daryl's time, but Daryl is done. This is my time. If you are in the Toronto area, I want to let you know that on Wednesday, June 8th at 8 p.m., You Made Me Queer will be opening the 2022 Buddies and Bad Times Pride Festival with a full stage show version of You Made Me Queer. This is not a live podcast episode. This is a full stage show with a set with a panel of furious, absolutely furious guests. There will be musical performances, live musical performances, and I will be changing costume no less than six times. I promise you, I can't spoil anything, but I would love for you to be there. This show is so important to me. It is the biggest You Made Me Queer thing that I have done, uh, and I'd love to share it with you if you can be there. So come celebrate Pride. Wednesday, June 8th at 8 p.m. at Buddies. You can find out more information at buddiesandbadtimes.com or if you follow the show on Instagram or Twitter, that is my show. The link for tickets is in the bio. Now back to the usual rigmarole. You can mail the show at youmademequeer at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this show. It's important. I tell you that every time. Please do it. Q credits. You Made Me Queer is created and produced by me, Trevor Campbell. Our editor is Sean Ben Beaton, another triple barrel. Our theme song is by Critty. For more from music, check out lavenderbruisers.bandcamp.com. Our website is youmademequeer.com. Our Instagram and Twitter handles are at youmademequeer. New episodes of You Made Me Queer come out every other Thursday and from the bottom of my big, bent, triple barrel heart. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, we're here, we're queer, and it's your fault.